Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. Ypsilanti's Water Street Sculpture Garden, also known as the Water Street Commons, was a rhizomal happening and community-run outdoor space in the city of Ypsilanti, which was most active between June 2013 and April 2016. Professor Beth Kearns, as a researcher, as a participant, and as an observer, was in the perfect position to study and document this phenomenon in recent Ypsilanti history. Professor Beth Kearns is an associate professor at Eastern Michigan University in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies, where she serves as the interim department head. Professor Kearns has presented and published on many subjects, including the intersections of public space, women, queerness, performance, and spirituality. Among her many publications and presentations, are Sociality and Politics in the Utopian Experiment, Ypsilanti's Water Street Sculpture Garden, at the Place Performance Identity Symposium at Eastern Michigan University in 2019. A version of this publication is under review to be part of an anthology published by Bloomsbury Press. Also of note is her 2017 book, Marching Dykes, Liberated Sluts, and Concerned Mothers, Women Transforming Public Space, published by University of Illinois Press. This interview with Professor Kearns was actually one of the first interviews I recorded for this podcast way back in October of 2020. So when you hear Professor Kearns talk about that very specific moment in time in the context of the nationwide Black Lives Matter movement, keep that in mind. As I was planning out the year of episodes, I thought it would be cool to feature this subject in May on account of the May Day celebrations that would happen at the Water Street Sculpture Gardens. At the end of this interview, after we turned off the mics, if you will, the first ideas of producing an episode about the Ypsilanti March for Love, Resilience, and Action were born. So without further ado, Professor Beth Kearns and Ypsilanti's Water Street Sculpture Garden. What is Water Street, and where is it in Ypsilanti? So Water Street probably refers to two different things. First of all, it refers to a patch of land that is between downtown and depot town in Ypsilanti. 
at this point, it's a series of empty lots, many of which used to be various kinds of things, including a paint factory. At one point, a long time ago, there were homes. There was an artist collective that used a building there. But all of this was torn down in the early 2000s. The other meaning of the term Water Street is, of course, the sculpture garden that was created there that was active from about 2012 to 2016 or 17, which is a place where people gathered to build art, to hang out with each other, to talk politics. Also to, you know, wander around solo, have nice meditative times, other kinds of times you might have by yourself or with someone you like a lot. It was a public space that allowed people to be in public really differently than say going to a bar or a restaurant or, you know, some of the more organized events that happen in Ipsy. What is the history of the Water Street Sculpture Garden, and what were the events that led to the beginnings of it? In some ways, after doing interviews with people about it, I feel like there are three origin stories. And that makes sense because there was three people who kind of came together to create it. And I think each of them has a different origin story. The one that I'm most familiar with is um, one of the co-creators, Jeff Clark, was involved with Occupy Ypsilanti, as was I. Occupy Ypsilanti was, of course, looking for public spaces to claim, and we had a couple of our general assemblies there. I think this was probably in 2011, I would guess. And in particular, I remember a May Day event that was held there, complete with a maypole, a potluck, all kinds of folks just hanging out. And in fact, I remember two May Days. The first one was bigger and more robust and had the maypole. The second one actually had a seed bombing event where Mark Maynard, who's another person who was very much involved with the sculpture garden, had put together seed bombs and had created catapults for children to launch native seeds into one of the um, empty lots. And so from my personal point of view, that was how I learned about Water Street was using it from that space. And for Jeff Clark, who again was one of the three people who originated it, that was also his introduction there. And the first sculpture that was created at Water Street was actually something that he advertised to a group of folks. I assume it went beyond Occupy Ypsilanti, but I saw it there. And a small group of us gathered and ended up creating a piece of land art, which is what he wanted to do. And we created a wall out of the rubble of the former paint factory and some of the rebar and other things that were there. It was a, you know, a group of us of about seven who came together and said, what we, should we do? And we used the materials we found and we followed actually the waterline, the point of drainage that you could see in the rubble to create this wall. And that wall was there and it you know, grew and shrunk in various ways over the course of time, the whole time that the sculpture garden was active. And when I talked to Mark Maynard, again, one of the three people who really originated the garden, he talked a lot about his interest in creating kind of a social space. Let me go back a second. I want to make it clear that for Jeff, this was a clearly political project, something that grew out of his investment in Occupy Ypsilanti and wanting to think about who has access to space, who can claim space, and having the claiming of space be central to the politics. For Mark, a lot of this was about sociality. Even some of the exact same things were more about being social and about creating space for people to come together, which is not to say Jeff didn't care about people coming together or Mark had no politics, but I mean, it just, the impetus was different for those two people. And then additionally, Jason Wright was the third person who was involved. And he's someone who spent a lot of time at Burning Man. And so for him, art was a way to bring people together 
And the first thing he built there was a hut, which was similar to things he'd built at Burning Man, which became a place where people could literally sit down. There were benches and chairs and you could seek shelter from the rain or the sun. And you could really like spend time in this outdoor space that remarkably had very little shade and have a real space to be social and engage. Earlier, you mentioned Occupy Ypsilanti. What was Occupy Ypsilanti locally and within a larger national and international context? Yeah, so the Occupy movement started with Occupy Wall Street. And I don't remember if that was 2010 or 2011. But it was a movement that wanted to draw attention to wealth inequalities in the U.S. And one of the key phrases they pioneered was the idea of the 1% which the 1% of Americans control a disproportionate amount of America's wealth. And that is actually not only still true, the distribution is even worse today than it was in 2010 or 11 when Occupy started. So across the nation, different communities created local manifestations. One of the other ones that was best known was Occupy Oakland. They also were claiming a central public space, but they also, you know, were outside for long periods of time. Just like at Occupy Wall Street, they made collective decisions using something called the general council, doing things that got called the people's mic. So if, say, there was, you know, 200 people in a space and not everybody could hear, people would repeat. So the speaker would say, I'm here to talk about wealth inequality, and everybody would repeat. I'm here to speak about wealth inequality so that people who are further away could hear. So those two, in some ways, Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Oakland were the best known, but there was Occupies all over the place, Los Angeles, Detroit, et cetera. And people in Ypsilanti were interested in doing our own manifestation of that. And this was right after I had moved here. I was very new to Ypsilanti. I just had started my job at Eastern and I attended some of these gatherings and got to know people who you know, had progressive and radical politics and were interested in thinking differently about how to be in our world and to be in Ypsilanti. And we never, you know, had like overnight occupation of spaces like they did in, say, New York City, Oakland, Detroit, other places. But we were looking for ways to kind of bring people together. And because of the people involved, which included a number of artists and poets, art was always part of the project of Occupy Ypsilanti, but it was one of many. And so in some ways, I think it was in probably in early 2012 that those gatherings stopped. They kind of turned into a reading group at one point. There was a small group of us continued meeting at the public library to have reading groups. But at a certain point, Occupy Ypsilanti just kind of ran out of steam, as it did nationwide, honestly, and in many ways turned into other things. And so the two clear outgrowths of local Occupy organizing were a foreclosure defense group that was created where people were figuring out who was being foreclosed on and showing up and, you know, helping prevent, you know, the authorities from kicking people out of their places. And then what became the Water Street Sculpture Park. When did Occupy Ipsy transition into different groups? Either late 2011 or early 2012. I know the Sculpture Garden started in 2012. But the foreclosure defense had actually been going on kind of the whole time. It was a very early outgrowth. So that actually definitely was happening by 2011. And it started out to be kind of a project of Occupy Ypsilanti. And then it kind of became its own thing. And then the sculpture garden really emerged after Occupy Ypsilanti had kind of dissipated. But people involved with the sculpture garden, including both Jeff Clark and Jason Wright, were also involved with Occupy Ypsilanti. 
Another term I hear to refer to this space is the Water Street Commons. What is the connection between the Water Street Commons and the Water Street Sculpture Garden? Were they different terms for the same space, or were they different parts of Water Street? Was either term more popular with some groups than with others? I think that they were just different ways of talking about it. And again, this goes back to its history with Occupy Ypsilanti. One of the other people involved with Occupy Ypsilanti is a radical historian named Peter Leinbaum, who retired from University of Toledo some years ago. And he is a Marxist historian, one of a handful of people who'd done research about the way land was used in pre-industrial Britain. And the term commons was one of the terms used at that time. So in some ways, commons is a very, very specific historical term that refers to parts of land that can be used by anybody in a community. But the way that term has gotten picked up in activist communities in the past decade is to think about things that are claimed and that might be publicly owned spaces, but that are controlled in certain ways by various laws and things that are kind of reclaimed for the people. So it really went alongside both national Occupy conversations, but also very specifically was happening Ypsilanti because of this particular person who was part of the conversation. And so it was one of the names that some people use for Water Street. And at points it was the primary name, at other points it wasn't. And I think different people use it different times. And I think it referenced the fact that we were trying to find a public space outside of capitalist enterprises to gather where you didn't have to pay to get in the door. You didn't have to buy so many drinks. You didn't have to purchase something to be in the space. So it was really trying to find a space outside of capitalism. And that's why that term was used. And I'm not sure that I can say who used it more than other people used it. I think it was an aspirational term. And I think that is really interesting because it gets at some of the aspirations of the space. You've already spoken about key figures in the development of the Water Street Sculpture Garden. Beyond the garden's genesis, was the space chiefly led by this group or by anonymous volunteers in terms of events, in terms of happenings, and in terms of the physical built space? Well, I think there's lots of different ways to look at it. On the one hand, it was always intended to be a space that anybody could use. And so I think people went there at all different times, and a lot of people built little mini sculptures during those times. But the primary people who did the building of sculptures were Jeff and Jason. Various people took their classes down there. I know that Jason took some of his classes down there. I took my class down there once, and Jeff helped us build a piece because he met us down there. So one aspect of the space was people could go there and do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. And that created some conflict because that meant sometimes people destroyed sculptures. And some of the people who destroyed sculptures were the homeless people who used them to build their homes. And some of them were probably just people who were being rude and other people were picking something up and creating something new with it. So I think that aspect of it, different people responded to differently. There were some formal gatherings there or, well, I don't know if formal is quite the right word. There were planned gatherings there. And one of those were happy hours on Friday nights. And those were initiated by the original three people, but they kind of took on their life of their own as well. So one of the people I interviewed said that one of his favorite moments was when he showed up one of these happy hours and somebody he'd never met explained to him the history of the happy hours. And he didn't say, oh, but I started them. But he's just like, okay, great. So other people have taken ownership of this. So there was some real initiative by the original group. And then there was also 
there was early on like some kind of gathering where lots of artists and musicians were there and played music and talked about art and people went down there and cooked food and created a gathering. There was later a early Black Lives Matter event there that involved the burning of a Confederate flag. Those were all initiated by some combination of the original folks. But I also know that, again, I took my class there. I also participated in a women's performance retreat weekend, and we spent part of the time there. My idea again. I'm sure there's other people who also had their own mini events there. So I think it was a combination of things. Yes, there was a set of things that were initiated by the original set of people, sometimes along with their partners. And there were also a lot of informal gatherings and also just a lot of space for people to go there and do things on their own. To what extent was the Water Street Sculpture Garden public, private, secret, or some combination of the three? I mean, in a lot of ways, even though it was fully public, it was really a set of people who were in the know. So it tended to be radical and progressive activists and people involved in the art scene and, you know, a subset of local lefty academics who mostly knew it was there. And then there were other people who stumbled upon it. I had a student. I'm trying to remember what she called it. I had my students create zines a couple years ago. And I can't remember the topic that one group chose, but one of them talked about one of her favorite places in Ipsy was, she called it hippie something or another. And she had this photo of herself down there. And I was like, oh my gosh, right? So this undergrad stumbled upon it. So I do think there's a small set of folks, but this is someone who was pretty adventuresome and pretty artsy. She stumbled upon it. There were other folks who I think just would see people walking down there and would wander down. And then again, the homeless community already knew about the space because behind the sculpture garden itself are a set of trees with enough openness that people could set up tents. So it was public, but it was also, you kind of had to know. And the only sculpture you could see from, the only two you could eventually see from the road were some of the later sculptures, and you still had to be kind of looking. And so you're right, it was interesting in the way it was kind of a private public space often. Like when I went down there by myself a handful of times and didn't see anybody. What role did factors such as gender, background, class, education, race, and ability play in who interacted in this public space in terms of public gatherings? Well, never the first of all, I want to point out that this was a rubble-filled lot, so it was not exactly ADA accessible. So anybody with mobility issues struggled. I had a friend I went down with there with multiple times and we'd take her electric wheelchair to the edge and then she'd use her cane to walk down and sit at a table, but she couldn't walk around the space. It was not a fully accessible space. So people with um, mobility limitations, I think, struggled with the space. I do think it also pulled what one of my interviewees called the culture class, right? So this is not necessarily about how much formal education you have, although most people probably had at least a bachelor's degree who were hanging out down there or were working on one at least. But it was also about your investment in certain kinds of art or activist cultures. So in that way, it was not fully accessible to people. I do think the happy hours were an exception. The people who came to the happy hours came from all kinds of backgrounds, including folks who were clearly from working class communities, including homeless people. I think also the happy hours were the time when you predominantly saw people of color there. When you're thinking about some of the more politicized gatherings or just down there building sculptures, it did tend to be predominantly white. And I do think men were more comfortable there, particularly being there alone. When I interviewed women, most of the women said that they didn't go there alone. 
and they talked about the ways that public spaces are coded as masculine spaces. Women get blamed if they experience violence in public spaces. And men often feel entitled to harass or harm women who are in public spaces, particularly if they're alone. I don't know of anybody who was harmed there. As far as I know, nobody was assaulted in that space. And I don't know stories of any particularly excessive harassment. But I do know that I once had to ask a couple of the men to walk me to my car because someone who was probably homeless, definitely intoxicated, probably not with alcohol or marijuana, had way too many things to say about some of my tattoos, and I didn't feel comfortable walking back to my car alone. So that space was gendered. And interestingly, for one of the folks who was part of originating it, who later became very involved with Black Lives Matter, and was the target of police surveillance and harassment, was actually surveilled and harassed there. And when I talked to him, he talked about how that experience helped him understand how women experience public spaces. Because he, for the first time in his life, didn't feel fully comfortable in public spaces and was looking over his shoulder, etc. For women, this is our experience, right? We sometimes choose to ignore it. We choose which spaces we go to and when. It's like we all have little rubrics in our head about when you can do these things and how much risk you're taking at a different time that men generally don't have. And I do think there's some exceptions for men who are perceived as effeminate. I think that can get a little bit more complicated, right? Or people who don't read obviously as men or women, whether or not they understand themselves as men or women, can get a little complicated here too. So I don't want to keep this in a rigid gender binary, but I do think our culture operates with a gender binary. And that people who are perceived as women are treated really differently than people who are perceived as men, which is also different for people who are not perceived as either, of course, in our public spaces. So yeah, I do think it was absolutely erased and classed and gendered space. I will say one other thing that came up in the interviews is one of the originators has a daughter. In fact, they all three do. But one of them mentioned that his daughter didn't feel comfortable building there. And he was trying to encourage her. And what I think he ran into was despite the fact that this space was open to her building, I think in addition to the public space issue, I think really addressing the ways that creative self-confidence is also gendered is in some ways harder to identify, but it was part of the process there. We live in a culture where assertiveness is tied up with boyhood and manhood which is not to say there aren't tons of really assertive girls and women, or to say that all boys and men feel fully like they have access to that assertiveness, but there is a way in which that's an additional dynamic. So there was the question of safety in public and that kind of stuff, but also the ways that creative assertiveness is coded as masculine. Were these issues addressed and did they change over time? I think that none of the originators wanted these to be issues. Like all of the originators wanted this to be open to everybody all the time. And none of them would have ever thought to create something that excluded people. But I also think it was really hard to figure out how to do that. Because part of the issue is not just who attended gatherings. And in fact, I think women felt very comfortable attending gatherings. It was who felt comfortable going there and maybe building a sculpture alone. And in some ways, that requires much deeper cultural change than a couple well-intentioned people could ever create. So I don't think it changed over time, but I also think that 
it's not like a more formal space where you could have put in rules that said anybody who harasses anybody gets kicked out. Well, kind of hard to control who was there, right? So in some ways, this gets at some of the limits of these anarchists in the broadest sense of that kind of space, is that rules require some kind of structure. And while I think there were informal structures at play at Water Street, a lot of time it was completely unstructured space. So who would be there to enforce the rules? What was the politics of the Water Street Sculpture Garden to the extent to which one could say that there was a unified politics of the space? One of the terms I came to when I was writing was to think about it as kind of a post-anarchist space. And anarchy, of course, here does not mean chaos. Like, let's be clear that anarchy in this sense means self-organization. So it was a self-organized space, and it was a space devoted to informal education and creativity, and it was an explicitly anti-capitalist space. So that would be what I would say. It was was anti-capitalist. It was also dedicated to a politics of self-organization which I think also meant that there was ways that dominant social politics around things like gender, race, and class, and ability became part of it as well. But that wasn't the intention. To what extent did the unhoused population interface with the Water Street Sculpture Garden during the duration of the space? To give you one example, if someone had built an outdoor cooking pit, and one winter, that got used all winter, not by the people who built it. Like, the homeless folks used that. It eventually broke down, <laughs> like, or not broke down. That assumes that it is electronic in some way. It eventually broke, and probably just because it was used too much. Also, sometimes people destroyed parts of the sculptures, and those were seen back in the homeless encampment, helping form parts of the homeless people's shelters. But then I also think that sometimes at these happy hours and other formal gatherings, homeless folks wandered through and became part of the conversation. Sometimes in very productive ways, it was pretty cool. But sometimes, as I said, some of us didn't know what to do with folks who might have had really different interactional norms, possibly because of whatever drugs they were taking. I think that was one of the complicated points there was not how do you interact with the rather nice homeless person who's a little socially awkward because doesn't usually hang out with this many people. But how do you interact with people who may be homeless either because of cognitive differences or because of drug addiction? And what do you do when you discover something you built was destroyed, but then it helped house someone? And on the other hand, I think the cooking stove was understood as a success, like something so you could go barbecue there periodically was actually used so people could eat food over the course of a cold winter. I think that was understood as a success by everyone, right? I think the answer is it was complicated. And like everything else, the answer is, yeah, it happened in lots of different ways. What kind of events and happenings took place in the Water Street Sculpture Garden? There are many events. I remember another local artsy event is called the Krampus Ball, which has happened at various locations around December 20th or so. And the Krampus Ball had a party there one winter after starting at a bar. Actually, I think it was the Dreamland Theater at that point, marching down which is kind of a celebration of Santa's alter ego that is common in Nordic countries. It was happened in Ipsy for some years. I'm not sure it's happening anymore. I love the Krampus Ball. That was there. Early on, there was a gathering that was intended as a gift to the community along the style of Burning Man, where the goal of Burning Man is that you give. You show up with your thing to give and other people are giving in various ways. And so folks early on created an event where they paid local people to come down and cook food and you could come down and you could get 
you know, I remember there was pork tacos and there were sausages being grilled on that barbecue that later got destroyed. People were making drinks. It was a gift to the community, like stage an event, invite people and provide. It had a specific name that I don't recall. And then there was also, I remember this really interesting artistic event where you could like, it was actually scheduled. You know, at this time, someone was going to play music in this event and at this location. And at that time, there was people reading poetry over there or showing people how to create part of the sculptures. So there was various different things, but the main structuring was the Friday night cocktail hours and then periodic other gatherings, sometimes only about Water Street and sometimes joining up, like the people marching from Dreamland Theater down there. And then I think there was some kind of one-off things, like this feminist performance retreat that we spent part of our time there, people taking their classes there. Part of Totally Awesome Fest was there for a couple of years. What brought about the end of the Water Street Sculpture Garden? Was it slow or sudden? Oh, no, it was pretty abrupt. So part of the story about Water Street, the property, is that this is a part of land that the city has been trying to sell to developers for a long time. And in 2017, there was finally a millage pass to help remediate the property again. It has been supposed to be remediated prior to that. But a study was done and there was toxins in the soil. And those toxins were, I think, unsurprisingly concentrated where there used to be a paint factory, which is exactly where the sculpture garden was. So the city decided to shut it down, and they shut it down in uneven ways. The person who was involved with Black Lives Matter was threatened with property damage and had to be taken to court, got out of it. But the other people were just given a cease and desist order. So on the one hand, I think the city really didn't want to get sued if a bunch of people were hanging out in a contaminated space. I also think that the way that happened was deeply political, that the Black Lives Matter activist was targeted in a really different way than people who weren't doing the Black Lives Matter organizing or who may be more like me who just showed up to a Black Lives Matter protest or whatever, but weren't doing the central organizing. So it was an abrupt end. The city came in, put up a fence, issued cease and desist orders and threatened one person with fines for quote-unquote property damage. Are there any parts of the Water Street Sculpture Garden that remain open to the public? It looks to me like it's entirely closed off. I also suspect that if you know where the holes in the fences are, you could probably get in. The area in front of the Sculpture Garden, which was where the seed bombing happened, which was supposed to become a wildflower field and that didn't really work, There's a bench up there that remembers Mike Brown. It's right along the sidewalk. So you can still go see a bench that it was a memory of someone who was killed. There's also a small memorial up there to the people who were killed in the church in Charleston by Dylan Roof. Interestingly, the most political aspects of sculpturing there, which were outside of the main garden, are the ones that are still accessible. You can still sit on a bench to remember Mike Brown you can still go to the small memorial for the people killed in Charleston. Besides the remaining physical elements, are there other elements of the culture and community of the Water Street Sculpture Garden that have spread into other parts of life in Ypsilanti? Ypsi's long had kind of an outsider art scene. And so, as I said, like with the Krampus Ball marching from the Dreamland Theater, which is itself an outsider art space, where puppet shows and all kinds of other things happen. And then the Krampus Ball, which was it's another version of outsider art, marching down there, I think that really is a metaphor for the larger conversation. 
Water Street Sculpture Garden grew out of a number of things, including the outsider art scene, and that continues. I also think the link to Black Lives Matter, which it happened nationwide, there was some early really robust organizing and things kind of got mellowed out until four or five months ago where there's been renewed organizing. We also see continued organizing in support of Black Lives that's connected to Water Street. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's other projects. You know, as you said at the beginning of the interview, I'm now the interim department head, so I bet there's things happening that I don't know about because I spend more time at work than I used to. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's other threads that are connecting out of that space, including music, art, all those things that actually Ipsy's known for in the region. A special thank you to Sam Killian for all his work on the Ipsy Stories webpage. We couldn't do it without you, Sam. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I l-i-b-r-a-r-y dot o-r-g Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the episode. In our next episode, we'll be talking to historian Matt Siegfried about the involvement of Black Ypsilantians in the American Civil War. If you don't want to miss it or other future episodes, you can always subscribe to Ipsy Stories on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and neighbors about us too. Bye now.